So we're moving along in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, uh, exploring the life of the patriarch Joseph this morning. Um, Genesis 41. What's that? Someone say something to me. Did I do something? Oh, okay. All right. You never know. <laughs> I might have some spinach in the teeth or something, you know. Genesis chapter 41. Now, there are moments in our life when God's plans just don't seem to make sense. I'm sure that you have asked your, uh, a question of God where you've said something along the lines of, why do, why do you have me here right now? Uh, why are you doing this particular thing in my life? Why is this person who is so instrumental in my life not here with me right now? Pain, disappointment, heartache. All of these things have a way of narrowing our vision, our outlook, our perspective of what God is doing in the world. Uh, you could think of it metaphorically like this. Pain has a way of making us see the world similarly to a child looking through a keyhole. Uh, that's a very small focus. At best, we just see a sliver of what lies on the other side of the door. And um, we can often mistake the sliver for the entire picture. Now, if only we could see the world the way that God sees the world. I appreciate these words from John Piper. He says that every day, God is perhaps doing 10,000 different things in your life, but you will only be dimly aware of perhaps three of those things. Now, the number itself is arbitrary, but the idea is that we only do get a slim picture of that which God is doing. So the point that we're going to see this morning is that God knows what he's doing. He knows. He is never clueless, even when we do not have a clue. Now, let's not forget Joseph's situation too quickly. If you haven't been along for the ride with us, Joseph is uh, a man who has gone through a lot so far. He's lived with a lot of bitter disappointments in his life. He was betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery. He lived under the cool, cruel bite of slavery for some time in the household of a man named Potiphar when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Now he is rotting away in a prison, and probably the worst reality that he has faced up to this point is he talked to a man, he helped a man out, a cupbearer, and uh, he asked that man to remember him. And for two years, no one ever came knocking on his cell door. No one ever brought him out of prison. I like these words from Erwin Lutzer. He shares this, Our difficulty is to see God in the dark night of our painful experiences. When injustice and tragedy lay their heavy burdens on us, we begin to question whether God can be trusted. It is crushing for us to see our dreams burst like an inflated soap bubble before our eyes. Then one day, God allows a ray of sunshine to come into our lives. As we open our Bibles to this text, we're going to see God bring a ray of sunshine into the life of Joseph. 
I'm sure you've heard the expression, he has a new lease on life. I love that expression. I love seeing a life transformed. I love seeing circumstances reverse. And I don't know about you, but all of us, I'm sure, have had a moment where we've needed a new lease on life. And as we look at the story of Joseph, we're going to see that he is the poster child of this expression. So the, uh, the story picks up with a new dream, but it's not Joseph's dream. It's actually Pharaoh's dream. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 together in Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. A Pharaoh is, of course, the big kahuna of Egypt's. Um, he was viewed as a powerful ruler, not just a powerful man, but they also looked at him as a divine figure. He was viewed as eternal, worthy of worship, omnipotent, omniscient. But isn't it interesting that Pharaoh wakes from his slumber, this so-called divine man, and he doesn't know the interpretation of his own dream? It's a good reminder that without the revelation of God, we cannot know anything of spiritual substance. Well, the dream's disturbing. The Nile is depicted. If you understand the Egyptian view of the Nile of this time, it was a perpetual source of life for them. Uh, they believed that it was a security deposit against famine. If you ever wanted bread, you go down to the land of Egypt because the Nile sustains them and provides for them. In addition to this, healthy cows are eaten by starving cows, and abundant grain is swallowed up by diseased grain. The man wakes up from his nightmare out of a cold sweat. Something was coming that not even the Nile could prevent. Something that had to do with Egypt's food. And Pharaoh's legacy is evaluated by what happens to Egypt's food. So what does Pharaoh do? Well, he calls in the NASA scientists, the MIT grads, uh, the Harvard business scholars. Uh, when you look at that word magicians in verse 8, uh, when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek in 200 B.C. thereabouts, the translators used a term that meant a well-versed person. The idea here is that 
Pharaoh is so disturbed by his dream that he calls in the best and the brightest. Let me ask you, what do you do when the NASA scientists are scratching their head? Well, this new dream jogs an old memory. Uh, the chief cupbearer has himself a little oops moment. If you look at Genesis 41.9, it tells us that the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense today. Mm, yes, I mean, can you imagine the dawning of that realization? We're not entirely sure whether the cupbearer forgot Joseph or if he just chose to leave him to rot in prison, but this is more than just a little oops. I mean, he left the guy rotting in jail for two years. And he knew that he was a man that could interpret dreams, and now he's got to go and talk to Pharaoh about this. But remember, as you're watching this story unfold, these little accidents, these little oops, are not accidents at all, because God is sovereignly working behind the scenes. Pharaoh hears the story and he calls for Joseph. Now clearly if you're only peering through the keyhole, from Joseph's perspective, this day is like any other day. He's ticked away on his wall, hasn't he? hundred days like this where I would just be staring at the door, waiting for a task to do, trying to get into my routine to get through the mundaneness, the monotony of life in prison. Uh, there's a lot of times where God does instrumental things and it appears to the individual like it's just another day. To David, when he was anointed the king of Israel, he was just another shepherd boy out in the field. To Moses, who was called to go down to Egypt to let God's people go, the day that he met God at the burning bush was just another day among other days, except it wasn't just another day. It was a day when God was going to move, and for Joseph, move in the heart of a king. We pick back up at verse 14. We see that Joseph is called upon. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, I mean, can you imagine the turn of events now? One moment, he's in a cell. <laughs> the next, he's quickly hurried out of the room. He changes his clothes. He shaves himself. And he's standing in front of the most powerful man in the world. Wow. I don't know about you, but I've stood around certain powerful people, not the most in the world, and it does change the way that you relate, doesn't it? But not for Joseph. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Listen closely to Joseph's response. It is not in me. Do you hear that? It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Don't let that statement pass over you too, too quickly. Let it sink in. It's not in me. God will give you a favorable answer. I mean, talk about humility. Talk about God confidence. When you think about this moment, here Joseph is presented with a new opportunity. 
We're faced with opportunities like this all the time, aren't we? Someone might come along and say something to you. You're really gifted. I've really seen uh, your, your, your talents shine. You stand out amongst the crowd. Uh, no one else can do things like you can do. And in that moment, you are left with an opportunity to seize the spotlight for someone. You know the temptation. It's easy to lean into the compliment and say, you know, you're right. I kind of am a big deal. I've worked extra hard to get here. Joseph could have said, I've put in my dues. I've been in prison for 13 long years. It's about time that somebody notices my talents. And i got to tell you, I think 17-year-old Joseph would have seized that opportunity for himself. I know for a fact that 17-year-old Rob would have. But look at how differently he seizes this new opportunity. I can't do anything. I'm just as lost as the MIT guys over there. Only God can give you the answer that you seek. Friends, the essence of humility is a right understanding of our place in the pecking order. Where you occupy the pecking order. Uh, When we are proud, the order of the world is flipped upside down. It looks something like this, me first, me second, maybe somewhere for others. But when we reverse the system, we actually get to reality because that pecking order is a distorted view of the world. The real picture is God is supreme and I am no better than my fellow man. Basically, without God, I cannot hope to accomplish anything. Without his revelation, I cannot hope to know anything. Without his kind grace in my life, I cannot hope for any good to come about in my life. This is why the Apostle Peter says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God gives us opportunities to brag all the time. The real question is who are you going to brag on? And Joseph, he brags on his God. Pharaoh seems impressed with the confidence in Joseph and in his God. He retells the dream in uh, the following verses, only this time he adds a couple of details. You look at verse 19 as he restates the dream, and Pharaoh notes that these are the ugliest cows that he's ever seen. Uh, This is a horrendous image that he's seen in his mind. Verse 21, he notes that the ugly cows eat the plump cows, but they gain no weight, which essentially gives us the idea that there is no changing of the, the latter outcome because of the previous. Well, slowly and methodically, Joseph tells Pharaoh the interpretation of the dream. Look with me now at verses 25 through 32. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So the interpretation is rather clear. The true two dreams represent one. Egypt will go through a time of abundance, seven years. It will go through a time of de- devastation for seven years. But again, notice Joseph makes the interpretation all about God. Look at how many times he says God has, God will, by God. Kent Hughes notices this. He says, Joseph's interpretation invoked God at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the interpretation. What is he saying to this king by invoking his God so much in this interpretation? I think that Joseph is saying to the king, kings do not make history. God makes history. God is so sovereign that he can call a slave out of a prison to uh, provide a revelation for a king who doesn't know anything about his dream. Kings might be involved in history, they might be players on the map, but ultimately God is the one who determines what will happen. It's through the prophet Isaiah that the Lord explains to another king, Cyrus, who would come on down the line in history, that he was brought to power for the sole purpose of accomplishing God's predetermined plans. Essentially, God is saying, kings are like putty in my hand. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We come back to the same question that I asked you last week. How big is your God? How in charge is he? How capable is he? How right is he in his judgments, whether to bring well-being or to bring calamity? I appreciated this story that I read this week. It was about a Princeton professor from Princeton Theological Seminary, Robert Dick Wilson, who served in the faculty in years gone by. One of his students had been invited to preach in Princeton's chapel 12 years before or after his graduation, and old Dr. Wilson came in and sat at the front to listen to this former student preach. He met with the student after the meeting, and he said this to him, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you. I only come once. I am glad that you are a big godder. 
when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know that what their ministry will be. His former student asked him to explain, and he replied, well, some men have a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scriptures to us. He doesn't intervene on the behalf of his people. They have a little god, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. Every single Christian should be a big Godder. Let me ask you the question. Are you a big godder. Do you have a big God in your world? If God can put nightmares into the dreams of kings, if he can raise up prisoners to calm the king's fears, then God is incredibly capable with your situation, your present circumstances, your future. Joseph's God is colossal. And uh, guided by this God, emboldened by his courage, he makes a suggestion to the king. Look at verses 33 through 36. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. Now that word to be discerning that Joseph uses there in verse 33 means that not only does a person understand that there is a problem, but they also step in to be a solution creator, right? Anyone can hear that a calamity is coming and say, wow, that's bad. No one's going to have food for seven years. That's going to sure be a miserable time, isn't it? But problems don't solve themselves. You see that? God needs a man that is emboldened, courageous, who is willing to step up and put forward a solution. He needs solution creators. You know where God needs solution creators? He needs them in the church. He needs them in the community. He needs them in the place of work. He needs them in the home. And so do Pharaohs. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. I mean, what a reversal of expectations right now, right? Uh, Pharaoh turns to Joseph 
and he identifies him as the right man for the job, he, he notices something about Joseph. He says, in you is the Spirit of God. Now, I don't think that Pharaoh has a, a clean understanding of who Joseph's God is, but he sees something supernatural in the way that God has empowered Joseph. And I think that the idea here is that people can see when the hand of God is upon a person. Uh, when we're living a life that's wholly surrendered unto God, when we're doing bold and courageous things in his name, people can see that. So Joseph's promotion can only be explained by God's involvement. I mean, think about his resume for just a moment. Spoiled kid, 17 years. Uh, he's a slave and then a prisoner, 13 years. And then he's elevated to prime minister of Egypt. Who has a resume like that? Uh, we're looking at it as a search committee, and after those first two, we would have been like, wah, 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 and thrown it into the trash. But Pharaoh sees something in this man, and he elevates him, and he says, you shall be over my house, and all the people, only as regards to the throne, will I be greater. And then he does some significant things. He, he gives him a signet ring, which is essentially like handing him a platinum company card. And then he puts a gold chain around his neck. He rides him out in front of the city and he identifies him as a man of authority. And then it tells us that he forces the man to marry. Can you imagine if you took on a job and you also had to get married for the sake of the job? She's a daughter of An. Her family is the Egyptian priestly caste, which means that Joseph has just been propelled into the nobility of Egypt. Oh, and one thing I forgot to mention, verse 32 or 42, uh, Pharaoh clothed him in garments of fine linen. Finally, clothes are not being used against Joseph. They're being used to elevate him. Have you ever noticed how God has a beautiful way of reversing bad trends in our lives? He can take the things that were crippling weaknesses in our life, and he can turn them into immense strengths. What a reversal. Now let's pause for a moment and think about what a big man Joseph is. We'll deal with this more in future sermons, but think about this. He's just been handed immense power. Uh, the kind of power that I don't think any of us can even imagine the kind of power where he gets to say something and it happens, uh, essentially. Now just think about all of your history and all the people that have burned you and hurt you and now you're handed the power over them. What would be the temptation? What would your heart want to do? Throughout the rest of his life, from age 30 to 110, when he dies, we do not read one word of resentment on the man's lips. Not one. Not a word of blame against his brothers. Not any bitterness towards Potiphar's wife. We don't hear of her head being lobbed off or anything like that. Not a rebuke against the, the cupbearer or a firing. Instead, Joseph seems to see that everything in his life has been leading up to this moment. 
that God was equipping him and training him and gifting him to have this skill set to be able to administrate an entire nation's economy. And what a wonderful job he does. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. In Activate yesterday, uh, our men's ministry program, the speakers challenged us with a principle that is really going to stick with me. We're covering a topic on work, and the speaker noted that our work isn't just about us. It's, just, it's not just about my career path. It's not just about my income level. It's not just about whether or not I'm going to be able to salt enough away for retirement. No, the, the purpose of work is God's glory and human flourishing. And he also noted that each of us has unique skills and gifts and that we can use those skills and gifts to bless the community. Here's the principle. He said this, lay your skill set over the deepest need of your city. That's what God leads Joseph to do here. Don't you see that God is deeply concerned with and invested in human suffering? Don't you see that God didn't just... Uh, give Joseph all of these uh, circumstances and events in his life so that he could uh, write a best-selling book on personal happiness later? No, God has Joseph in Egypt. He sent him down to Egypt so that he could lay his skill set over the deepest need of the nation of Egypt. And what was that need? Future famine, economic ruin, children starving to death, a famine so bitter that even the Nile would not preserve them for seven inescapable years. That's why God sent Joseph. Let me ask you, what are you skillful at? What has God gifted you to do? I mean, maybe you're a number cruncher, and maybe you can use that skill in the setting of a nonprofit organization who desperately needs someone with that talent. Maybe you have a, a deep instinct for nurturing, hurting individuals. How many children need a home right now to be loved, cared for, provided for? Maybe you have the gift of vision and strategy. Organizations need leadership. We need more Josephs. We need more Josephs who are willing to go out into the community and, and lay their skill set over the needs of that community. This is what is remarkable. It's not about accolades. It's not about climbing the ladder. It's the saving of many lives that comes when someone with significant skills 
lays those over the community for the common good. Now, as we read the rest of the story, we'll see that Joseph's new lease on life wasn't just physical, and it wasn't just elevating, but there's also a personal he- healing that the man undergoes. Uh, God is a God who can take your wounds. He can take even your old wounds, and he can promote healing in your life. He takes areas in our life that have been dead for some time, decaying for some time, and just like we're seeing in spring, he causes those new green shoots to come up from the ground. Look at verses 50 and 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I hope you see that that healing that is occurring in the naming of these boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. I also hope you see the the deep faith that Joseph has built over these years in his life. He chooses to give his sons Hebrew names, names that would identify them with the living God. And both of those names are significant. Manasseh. Joseph gives us the meaning. God has made me forget. Forget. All my hardship and all my father's house. Now he's not talking about his past and saying that in some way God's uh, helped me to kind of sweep all of those events under the rug and just pretend like it never happened. I don't think that's what he's saying at all here. What I see in the text is that by God's grace, he has come to terms with his past. It has happened. It was incredibly painful, but by God's grace, I am not going to dwell upon this. I am not going to let this define who I am moving forward. Because remember this, only God can define who you are and who you will become. Ephraim means fruitful. In fact, the Hebrew actually means something like super fruitful. Whatever Joseph had lost in the past, he recognized God's new opportunities have brought more compensation than he had lost. Another biblical character that reminds us of that is Job. Job lost everything. Sons, daughters, his marriage, every single material possession that he had in the world. He even lost his physical uh, safety when he was afflicted with great, great tragedy. But God comes into Job's world and he gives back to him everything that he lost because God is able to greatly reverse our pain. I want you to listen here too because the order of the names are important. Manasseh must come before Ephraim. You have to let go of bitterness and release hurt before you can experience blessing and new life. You might ask, but how can I let go of my pain? It's here. It's raw. It's real in my life. I carry it with me every single day. And we have to look at what Joseph does here again. He gives us the answer, and the answer is quite simple. It is God. Look at those names again. God. 
has made me forget. God has made me fruitful. If you don't insert God into the healing process, if you don't allow him to lead the healing process, then you are never going to get to Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, you might get sick of me saying this, and if you do, you're missing the point of this story. You have to be a big godder. Only a big God can give us a new lease on life. Only a big God can cause what is new to rise out of what is dead. Only a big God can take immense pain and use to the pain to strengthen us so that we are able to do far more than that we could ask, think, or imagine. That's the point of Genesis chapter 41. God is able to give you a new lease on life. Now, I know a young lady who I have watched receive a new lease on life, and uh, she's actually my cousin. Over 10 years ago, she was driving my grandfather home after an outing together. To enter my grandfather's hill, you had to make a dangerous stop in um, a trafficy area. One of the reasons that the stop was so dangerous is there was a big hill and they had to stop on this side of the hill, and traffic would come bombing up the other side of the hill. Well, one afternoon, they were on an outing, and they were waiting to turn up the hill when a utility truck was cruising 60, 70 miles an hour up the hill, and by the time he had made the crest of the hill, there was nothing that he could do to stop. He slammed on the brakes, but he could not stop in time, and he totaled the car that they were in my cousin was pretty seriously injured. My grandfather experienced invisible complications that would lead to his death. She would live with back problems, and due to the pain of, I think, the emotionality of losing a man that was closer to her than a father, and this ongoing pain, she developed an addiction to opioids. Her life spiraled out of control. There were many dark days from 19 to 26, 36 different pain pills, uh, prescription pain pills. She died several times, was revived. At the bottom of her well, though, was when she had finally reached out. She had looked for rehab centers, and the only place that would take her at the time was a rehab in California. So she hopped on a plane. She went out to California. She started rehab quickly in the process, relapsed, made a very unhealthy relationship. And within six months of that relationship was living in a complete abusive nightmare. Put cameras in the house to monitor her at all times, hurt her physically, said horrible things to her, so much so to the point that she did not believe that she was anyone or anything. However, God, in his goodness and grace, made a way for her to escape this abusive situation. She made her way back home, and slowly over time, he healed her. Uh, she stepped away from the addiction. She started feeling God's sense of worth upon her instead of the sense of worth that she had lost in these relationships. And just last year, my cousin was actually able to share her story on a nightly news program, and she acknowledged that this new lease on life only came about because of her relationship with God. Today, my cousin seems to be in a period of Manasseh and Ephraim. 
She's chosen to come to terms with the past, and God is blessing her. In fact, he's blessed her immensely. I want you to hear just a couple of words that she shared on Facebook recently. She said, it's been two years, and God continues to show me his love. I want to thank God, my family, my company, and my leaders for believing in me and giving me a chance of a lifetime, even though I had past struggles. And just a little parenthetical statement there. Um, she had lost her job, and when she lost it over the addiction, it was lambasted all over the news. Everybody in her little community knew. So when she came back home, she had no prospects of finding a job. But in 2019, or before that, two years before that, a company gave her a chance to have a job. And since then, in those two years, it's now 2019, she says, I've spoken at many organizations, was featured speaker on the news, bought my first new car, bought my first house, and have won three awards at work. You see, God can give new leases on life. He can give someone like my cousin a new lease on life. He can give someone like you a new lease on life. I don't know every detail of your story. I, I don't know all the ins and outs of your story. But the one thing I can tell you is that the story of the Bible is marching forward to the person of Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, we'll see that he is the great giver of this new lease on life. If you put your faith in him, if you trust in him, he will change your world dramatically. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for this time that we could look at your word. I praise you and thank you for being a great restorer of people. I thank you for elevating Joseph. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you elevated us because you elevated your son, Jesus. And Jesus, if we think of someone who had humbled themselves was the greatest humbler of all. Uh, even though he was God, Lord, he did not take the rights and the privileges of God, but lowered himself to the form of a servant. He died on the cross for our sakes. And because of that humbling, God, we could be elevated. And because of that humbling, you will elevate Jesus and his name above all names. We thank you for this. We pray, God, that we'd be changed by your word in Jesus' name. Amen.